have a lot of opinions about Cora, not all of them great. <laughs> and I haven't seen Cora either, but in, in kind of watching the first couple of episodes, I'm already opinionated. Hello, Internet! We are your friends at Fangamer, and this is the podcast where you get to hang out with weirdos who work at a video game merchandising company. I'm your host, Charlie, and I'm joined today by Sarah, Carolyn, and Jack. Say hello. Hello! Hi! (laughs) Hello! (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, today we're going to conclude our EXP share of Avatar The Last Airbender, and we'll be covering the second half of the final season. Once again, I'm going to start by reading a quick overview of the episodes we'll be covering, and then we'll start diving deeper, so... Let's get to it. Episode 12, the Western Air Temple. The gang retreats to the Western Air Temple to regroup. They were talking about the need for Aang to find the new firebending master when Zuko arrives, offering to train him. The group rejects Zuko, but after he saves them from Combustion Man, they cautiously accept him as Aang's teacher. Episode 13, the firebending masters. Zuko begins teaching Aang the basics of firebending, but then he starts having trouble with firebending himself. So he and Aang seek out the original firebenders, traveling to the ruins of the Sunbenders, where they discover a secret lost civilization. After performing for a pair of dragons, the dragons grant Aang and Zuko a deeper understanding of firebending. Episode 14, The Boiling Rock, Part 1. Sokka wants to find and free his dad and the others captured after this Black Sun invasion. He travels with Zuko and infiltrates a prison called the Boiling Rock, which turns out not to have Sokka's dad, but it does have Suki. Sokka concocts an escape plan, but he abandons it when he hears of new prisoners arriving soon that may include his dad. Episode 15, The Boiling Rock Part 2. Sokka's dad, Hakoda, arrives at the prison and they begin to concoct a new escape plan. However, Azula arrives along with Mei and Tai Lee, and the plan is nearly blown. In the confusion of a prison riot, the gang takes the prison warden hostage. After fighting Azula, the gang is nearly dropped to their deaths in boiling water, but they're saved by Mei. As Sokka's team escapes, Mei and Tai Lee turn against Azula and are arrested. Episode 16, The Southern Raiders. The gang is found by Azula and escape from the Western Air Temple. Zuko, seeking to address Katara's doubts about him, takes Katara on a mission to get revenge on the man who killed her mother. They find the man, a sad, empty creature, and Katara ends up letting him live. Episode 17, The Ember Island Players. The gang seeks refuge on Ember Island and opt to see a play that recounts their adventures to this point. Aang presses Katara for a romantic commitment and is rejected when he becomes too forceful. Episode 18, Sozin's Comet Part 1, The Phoenix King. Zuko learns that the gang was planning to wait until after the comet to face the Fire Lord, so he reveals that his father is planning a massive wave of destruction on the day of the comet. Aang struggles with the reality that he may have to kill Sosin in order to save the world and ends up on a mysterious island that appears nearby and disappears with him on it. The gang tries to hunt him down, but fail. Meanwhile, Ozai names Azula Fire Lord and declares himself the Phoenix King, ruler of the world. Episode 19, Sozin's Comet Part 2, The Old Masters. Aang seeks guidance from his past selves, none of which tell him what he wants to hear. He realizes that the island he's on is a a lion turtle, which offers him some wisdom before dropping him off at the Earth Kingdom. Meanwhile, the rest of the gang find Ira and the other Old Masters from their journey, all members of a group called the White Lotus. The group splits up, with Zuko and Katara headed to the Fire Nation to face Azula, Sokka, Toph, and Suki headed for the Air Force to stop the assault, and the Old Masters led by Iroh to retake Ba Sing Se. 
Episode 20, Sozin's Comet Part 3, Into the Inferno. Azula's mental state declines in the wake of May and Tylee's betrayal, and she begins to hallucinate. Zuko arrives, and she challenges him to an Agni Kai, but when Zuko eventually gains the upper hand, Azula shoots lightning at Katara, prompting Zuko to take the hit and collapse. Meanwhile, Sokka's team infiltrates the Air Force and begins taking down the fleet, and the White Lotus ejects the Fire Nation from Ba Sing Se, and Aang begins battling Ozai, though Ozai has the upper hand. Episode 21, Sozin's Comet Part 4, Avatar Aang. Ba Sing Se is liberated, and Sokka's team disables the Air Force. Katara defeats Azula and saves Zuko, and then Ozai unlocks Aang's avatar state, which then turns the tables against Ozai and nearly kills him. But Aang returns to himself and instead seals away Ozai's bending abilities using a technique learned from the Lion Turtle. Uh, Zuko is crowned Fire Lord, who promises to help the Fire Nation redeem its honor. You have been calling Ozai Sozin. I have? Yeah. Oh, shoot. Dang it, dang it, dang it. I can fix that in post. Anyway, I really glossed over a lot there, so where would you like to dive in first? I kind of like sequentially going through the episodes. Sure, yeah, I guess we can just start with episode 12 and see if any threads, yeah, if, if they lead us forward, then we can just follow it forward without having to, you know, limit it to that episode. But uh, yeah, let's see. Yeah, I think we all just want to talk about the finale. And if we do that, that'll be the whole episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have, a, have another episode set aside just for the finale. Um, no. Yeah. Let's see here. I, I, well, first of all, I'd like to say that the Western Air Temple is the coolest Air Temple design I've seen yet. Oh, it totally is. Yeah, I think just generally, like, the locations that they came up with here in the second half of this, uh, of this season, like, the backgrounds and everything just really went up a notch just to really increase the wow factor of the whole show for this finale here. Yeah, I think especially in terms of animation as well, they definitely have saved the, like, the best fights happen in the third season. Mm -hmm. And just some of the best animation, in my opinion, like, fights between Azula and Zuko. This is, I'm about to get us, like, way deep, so maybe I'll I'll backtrack (laughs) for a second, but there's some fights that I think are just beautifully done. Mm -hmm. In terms of the Western Air Temple, one of my favorite parts about that is how endearing Zuko is. (laughs) He's like, why am I so bad at being good? (laughs) And you're just like, oh, Zuko, you're trying so hard. Yeah, in that moment, we really feel for him kind of against the rest of the group. Uh, Just because we really want him to succeed here. Uh, But of course, you know, the rest of the group doesn't doesn't have the history with him that we do. They have their own history with him, which is the problem. Mm-hmm. I think as the audience, because we have this perspective of Zuko's own personal journey, I think we might be more sympathetic and lenient to forgiveness than the other characters are in this situation. What you're seeing is that like each of these other characters have their own threshold for forgiveness and each each individual takes like a different level of good faith to kind of bring him in and welcome him but Katara is really that final gate holder and the one that I guess like holds the most resentment against him and I think that resentment for Katara specifically comes from a very fair place because she it's not just that like oh Zuko's done all these things in the past it's like oh I was an idiot the first time I tried to forgive him, right? Mm -hmm. And it cost me, it almost cost me Aang. Yeah. And also just the future of everyone. So I think that that just furthers Katara's and just her whole arc, her whole season three arc 
so well because you know then we fast forward to the one where she the what's it called the southern raiders where you know zuko's trying so hard to get into her good graces and we also see zuko really doesn't understand what it means to forgive himself like he doesn't think that's what katara needs and they have that whole thing with Aang. I think it's just generally interesting the way that Zuko ends up having to interact with each member of the group uh, in order to get yeah. his uh, get get in with them. Kind of the same as how Toph needed to do the same thing, like kind of establish her rapport with everybody. And progress on Katara is definitely the most rocky and in some ways the most... Um, I guess fulfilling to see uh, as as she does eventually really come around on him. And whenever she comes around, she really comes around on him. Just because like he is basically prostrating himself before her to try to you know help her out uh, as much as or do whatever it takes to to get into her good graces to the point where he almost overdoes it in, in that he's like or he sees this darker impulse in Katara as she wants to get this uh, this revenge on. Uh, the guy who killed her mother, and he he kind of feeds that that darker impulse longer than he probably should. In part because he really understands it, but uh, I like at that point he doesn't know Katara the way that everybody else knows Katara, yeah. and so they he doesn't realize just how how different this is for her, like how how weird of a turn it is for her, and it's definitely understandable. Like it doesn't it doesn't seem like it's uncharacteristic for her because of you know the subject of of this dark emotion for her but um he he doesn't reject it the way that everybody else does even for the audience it's a definite turn for katara right and i think that one of the moments that i really enjoy is when katara uses bloodbending when they're finally on the ship she uses bloodbending and zuko's eyes go like super wide because I think he's a person who has fought Katara many times. He's watched her when she was, you know, a, an amateur to when she became a master and he's fought her even like many times since she's become a master. But I think this is the first time he realizes just how powerful Katara is. And to your point of like, he doesn't, he doesn't really understand Katara, and I think that he doesn't understand her in so many ways. Yeah, because he kind of just lets her, he's along to facilitate her own journey, being that he's only really using his connection to the Fire Nation to give her better agency in how she wants to handle this confrontation. Yeah, that's true. And then it all comes together when he brings Katara along to fight Azula. Because as we all watch, one of the most interesting things is watching back this series, realizing that Katara is one of the only people who who could really best Azula in a fight. To have her be the one to defeat Azula, along with the relationship that has been built between her and Zuko, I thought was really fitting. One thing that, that I found very interesting was, I don't know that it was... A f- I mean, I, I, I'm almost certain it wasn't a full moon whenever Katara blood bent that guy on that ship. Oh, yeah. I don't know. At least they certainly never uh, made a point to show it. Yeah, and I think, generally speaking, this show is good about that sort of thing. Um, 
and yeah, I don't think it's been a whole month since then. So uh, since the last time she did it, which suggests that she's figured out how to do it, like she or she's powerful enough to use that ability even without being at full power, which is mm-hmm. frightening, but also like clearly she is not inclined to use it unless she is in that really dark mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and and seeing her use it in that context also feels like, I don't know, maybe not, maybe not scary. Um, it's probably the closest thing the show can do to have someone like point a gun at someone. Yeah. Or like have a knife to their throat or something. Like there's something really sad about the fact that this character is at this point. Yeah. Which I think is a lot of what that whole episode is, uh, is, is covering. Well, mm-hmm. we saw her fight so hard against it and we saw her you know sort of vow never to do it so that to while it is her own agency i don't think it's her values yeah she's compromised something you can see before she leaves like ang is really concerned because ang knows what she is capable of and he also knows like i don't want this for you Kind of, kind of to Jack's point of like it's like pointing a gun at someone. The show. This is cheesy, but I'll say it. It's like you got to be bloodthirsty to be a blood vendor. Um, (laughs) It's like you are manipulating someone's will at that point, and I think that's why it's um, kind of treated as like almost a forbidden and like dark craft. Yeah. You're really violating their body in a lot of ways. And that's got a lot of implications. Yeah. I also just generally enjoy all of the Zuko dates. (laughs) They're all really fun. Uh, Even the Katara one, even though it takes a a dark, it it seems like it almost takes a dark turn, but, you know, it veers away at, you know, exactly the right moment. That's one of my favorite episodes, actually, just because I love the Katara arc and I love watching like what a complicated character she's become. I think the series, um, just with how it's paced out, it spends a lot of time with like characters as a group, but then characters one-on-one as well. And it's almost like we're focusing so much on Zuko and kind of like these episodes back to back. So he can also be developed in the group more intentionally. And to make, to repair so much of the, I think that's why we don't see, uh, you know, and she makes a joke about this at one point, but we don't see a date with Toph because his relationship with Toph, Toph vouched for him. We don't need that, but the audience doesn't need that and the characters don't need that. But Zuko had to make amends to the three people who he hunted so viciously. Speaking of the one of the dates, the Boiling Rock episodes... I think the best part of that episode is when May and Ty Lee betray Azula. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that's, that's a point that just sends chills down your spine. Or you just kind of, you're, you're kind of worried, but also like that moment whenever Ty Lee just, you know, does her, her cheap blocking technique on Azula. You're just like, yes. <laughs> and May's line of like, you miscalculated. It's just, it shows you the whole time. And this is something, you know, but May is not scared of Azula. And it results in that, which I just, I love it. Yeah, that probably gives Ty Lee the confidence to like also not be afraid of Azula. Or if she is afraid, she still is, she's not afraid enough to like disarm her. I mean, I think, 
I, I think Ty Lee surprised the crap out of herself whenever she did that. Like the yeah. look on her face afterwards, she's like, what did I just do? Yeah. Reflex. And um, immediately she thinks of the consequences of like, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that shows just, I think she saw danger for her friend May coming from uh, a hostile force. And then she, her instincts just kind of took over, even though that hostile force was Azula. And then, yeah, at that point, it was the point of no return for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, that's the catalyst for Azula just descending. Yeah, that's that's it's, it's not just a good moment in and of itself. It's an important moment going forward that just uh, ripples through the rest of the show until the end. I think uh, Azula's whole arc and like especially my uh, or May and Tylee's uh, betrayal, if you want to call it that. I think is a really good representation of a lot of sort of toxic relationships and also just um, sort of destructive personality types in that um, really there's those cycles are only allowed to continue. And like the only people who can really break that cycle are the people who are the closest to that, like to that person in in that relationship. So uh, like Zuko, May, Tylee, like all of them, they, yeah, they had the power to stop Azula's like madness this whole time. And so like that first, I mean, Zuko's always been kind of, you know, the whole show, you're kind of waiting for him to do something to stop Azula. Or he, and he tries, you know, every now and again, but like, I think May and Tylee's like, they were the only ones who really could have broke, put a, put a dent in Azula's like record in her armor, her mental armor, knowing that uh, she's, yeah, the, the people who she thought she could trust, like don't feel safe around her. And, and I think when we tie that to the idea of her mother, when she's, you know, looking at herself in the mirror and her, she's hallucinating her mother, it's, I think, this idea that she never, she mm-hmm. didn't know what to do with, like, unconditional love or didn't maybe, like, fully understand it because she can't give unconditional love, obviously. But, like, I think she thought she had something unconditional from May and Tylee that she just... She didn't, so it, it like pulls to the idea that she like can't accept unconditional love from her mother. If that yeah. makes sense, yeah, that's a complicated one because it's her mom. I think reacts in a way that Azula has like kept with her for a long time, being that her mom was like, "I'm afraid of you." Yes, but in the hallucination, her mother says she loves her. Yes, and that's when she breaks the mirror. Yeah, yeah, I. I guess my whole thing with Azula is that she's never like had to earn unconditional love or like earn in a relationship. So, well, the point of unconditional love is you don't earn it, right? You just have it, but in like a real genuine way. Well, I guess I'm saying that like her, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe she feels like she doesn't deserve it. Yeah, you're true. You're right that you, you don't need to work. You know, unconditional love isn't earned it's just freely given but yeah maybe she just never really felt that she could be loved because i think she doesn't know how to love someone else like i think she really doesn't have empathy and so the thought that like you could love someone unconditionally is like a weakness right versus you could get unconditional devotion like she thought she had from may and tylee but the thought of like her mother actually loving her is not something or maybe it's something she did always want but she didn't feel like she actually had and but Zuko had where I feel like we can unpack that forever <laughs> <laughs> but yeah just generally I'd say the Boiling Rock episodes are just 
very good because of how much like I mean sure they end at an incredible spot and it's really easy to just kind of remember that that point whenever May and Tylee turn against Azula and it, it just kind of makes you forget about a lot of the stuff that happened before then but I mean it's I mean it's a two-part episode for a reason and although at, at first he kind of or at least I felt like oh here it is another inescapable prison because <laughs> you know we've already done this earlier in the series but the way that they go about it is uh is you know way different like they have the uh you know Zuko and Sokka infiltrating the place like Metal Gear Solid style mm-hmm. <laughs> the stakes are much higher they don't have Appa yeah like they can't just leave at any point like they are basically trapped there they need to figure out some other way out and Sokka's plan like the way how quickly he figures out the the way to use those uh, those cooling chambers to get across the lake he's clearly he's really smart Sokka is, <laughs> he knows what he's doing he's so good at this uh, and the only mm. reason why that doesn't work is because the guy shouts well no I mean oh okay he, he might have been able to pre- prevent that uh, if he was if they were all escaping together on the thing yeah 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 but yeah instead they uh, they they stayed and then like the tensions. Or in that in that second episode, just keep on mounting because there's one complication after another. Like you know the um, the the warden knows that okay, this prisoner he's not smart enough to have figured out this this plan, so somebody had to have helped. Zuko uh, Sokka's the only one who's able to move around freely because he's the only one. Because uh, at some point Zuko got uh, um, got captured and became mm-hmm. just another prisoner. And then Azula arrives, and you know that that's always a complicating factor. Like, you don't know what she knows. And she usually knows more than she than anybody wants her to. And it just, <laughs> the speed at which that all just mounts up. Like, even whenever they have the prison riot, they're looking around. It's like, all right, this is our opportunity. Maybe we can figure a way. What, actually, we don't know what we're supposed to do next. <laughs> and then and then Suki just takes over and just you know does her her Kyoshi warrior thing and gets up there and actually manages to take uh to take the warden hostage but yeah it's just it's it's so tense and continues to be tense uh all the way up until until that moment whenever May and Tylee basically faced her. Mm-hmm. There's a a line that Azula says where she the warden is like interrogating who could have done this. And she's just like, you're, you're an idiot. None of these are them. Cause she knows immediately it's Sokka. And he's like, how do you know? And she's like, I'm a people person, yeah. um, which is one of the lines, but then it's directly contradicted. She's not a people person. Cause she totally miscalculated May and Tylee. Yeah. Um, and so I think in addition to, like, questioning her own... I mean, that's, a, that's an almost Sokka-level degree of uh, <laughs> the world contradicting something that yeah. you just said. Yeah. <laughs> I think that, like, what May and Tylee's betrayal does is it's not... It doesn't just shatter her, you know, oh, do I have devotion? It shatters her whole view of people, her whole view of success, um, now she's not good at manipulating people anymore. She mm-hmm. she has to win by brute force. And so by the time we get to the end, she's totally slipped. It's because she's lost her confidence. Yeah. It's kind of a, there's probably some sort of parallel you could draw with her and the warden where he's very much proud of his uh, perfect record of zero escapes and is even willing to kill himself to maintain that record. And then as soon as, 
Azula gets one, you know, one time, you know, like you said, you know, she miscalculated, like she made a mistake and it cost her like almost everything. Then, then after that, she just keeps tripping over and over again on herself. I mean, yeah. I don't think that that's, that's quite it though, because I think Azula has, has accepted failure before because uh, she, like she always takes a long view on things. Like she has definitely had to retreat from battles before this failure where Zuko and Sokka and uh, well, whenever they get away from the prison, that is not a big failure for Azula. She doesn't really care that much about that. It's completely the interpersonal relationships between yeah. her and May and Ty Lee. That's mm-hmm. where she got wrecked. Uh, yeah. Well, I think there's also never been a point where she's just been powerless. She's always mm-hmm. escaped of her own will, whereas, you know, Kylie just straight up disabled her. Like, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. very rare that uh, Azula's ever just face down, can't fight back. Yeah, she. I don't, yeah, I think she is not good at being helpless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Reminds me of the confrontation that the final battle between her and Katara and when she's kind of chained to, like, the metal grate on the oh ground. Oh, my gosh. And, and I was like... Oh, she's really beaten down. <laughs> she's just screaming. Yeah. That, that, that part is very uncomfortable for me to watch mm-hmm. just because, like, she is so broken at this point. She's she's flailing around like a wild animal. And yeah. it's, yeah. like, the degree to which she's fallen, it, it hurts. Yeah. Know? And mm-hmm. even leading up to that in the fight, first of all, that whole fight, even though, so we have the two halves of the fight. You have the Zuko face off against Azula. I think she calls it like the Agni Kai that was always meant to be. And then you have, you know, after she shoots Zuko and Katara takes over, but um, there's a point where she, I think it was right before a commercial break. She's like, she has this horrifying laugh as she just like run t- runs towards the camera and like consumes the camera. And her whole demeanor is just crooked and off and terrifying. Mm. Yeah. Cause whenever if she's unhinged, in. yeah, she's also not completely on, on her game, but also that means that you don't really know what she's about to do. Mm-hmm. She's totally unpredictable. I watched this live with my sister and I think I mentioned last time, my sister's like the biggest Zuko fan there is. Like she, her, her, I don't know what her connection is with him, but she like really feels for him. And so when he died or when she, it, it, the, it, not when he died, when he gets shot, it went immediately to commercial break. I've never seen my sister more upset in my entire life. She was like, just couldn't handle handle it um, screamed for him yeah and it was <laughs> it was a very well-timed commercial break on the <laughs> part yeah we were actually we were wondering which one was the commercial break that 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 got your sister like that yeah it was a little <laughs> little game a little game we were playing that's something we miss now that we stream things uh it's a different like communal event too because you know you can talk I don't know, ideas and react like maybe with time in between with like commercials, but in process. Yeah. And process. That's what it is. And pace and break things. Yeah. Career. <laughs> it's up to the older generation when we're sharing this with, uh, with people to have to pause Netflix and turn over a sand, yeah. an hour, an hour, yeah, a sand timer and be like, 
All right, we got five minutes. What do you, what do you think about that so far? <laughs> See, kids, this is what a commercial break was like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I don't know that I miss commercials, but I think there's definitely something to that idea of having time to process things. Yeah. Uh, that, especially between episodes of shows, like being able to, because whenever you have, whenever you're only watching one episode every week, then you have time to really like look at it and like think about what happened and the implications about what's happening next and all that. Whereas mm-hmm. whenever it's happening in rapid succession for you, it can be, it, it can blur together a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that was one of the things that might've made Game of Thrones as big of a cultural touchstone as it was. I mean, cause it's not like it's the only thing that comes, that comes out weekly nowadays. But it was a thing that a lot of people were watching, and they had to wait a week between uh, between yeah. every episode, which yeah. meant that everybody could put out their think pieces in between and all that stuff. And somebody sees a coffee cup on a table, and <laughs> oh, <laughs> like yeah. that the, the, they forgot to take out of the the, the shot. Yeah, it, it just yeah. There, there's something fun about. Uh, not binging shows, I think. Yeah. Yeah. True. Especially yeah, with a show that's made to be serialized and like once a week sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of wish I had experienced it that way, but um, it was still fun. <laughs> but yeah, I, I definitely think uh, some of the episodes are so tightly packed and like so dense, and there's a lot to unpack for each episode. That like, yeah, having that week that week span would have really, I think, been good for digesting and unspooling some of the thoughts and ideas in there there was one while while we're sort of still tangentially on the subject of may and ty lee one i don't think that betrayal would have worked as well if may and ty lee weren't like such complete characters even though they're technically pretty small characters but something my coworker colin said today was we were talking about the finale and he said it's interesting that ty lee who wanted to be so individual, right? She like joined the circus because she wanted to get away from her sisters that we learn. She joined the warriors who all dress the same and are like a girl gang. I I had never thought about that point until Colin said it. And I was like, oh yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, the the very strong non-bender on one side connects with the very strong non-benders on the other side. I mean, there's definitely something there, like, there's something to be said about a found family that makes it very different from your own family if you don't feel like you really fit in there. Like, I don't think that Ty Lee really minds being a part of a group by any stretch. I think she actually really wants to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also her chi-blocking abilities are also very unique in their own. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it makes me really look forward to seeing what the uh what the Kyoshi Warriors are gonna accomplish next. Because <laughs> now they can really yeah. theoretically stand up against uh against other ben- or against vendors. Yeah. Yeah. I think they insinuated that the chi blocking ability is something that could be taught too. Yeah, that's how she got into the Kyoshi Warriors, because they, they made her teach them the basics of that before they let her become one. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I think we kind of skipped over uh, the the Firebending Masters episode, but I think it's worth going back to a little bit. If, if for no other reason than because I really loved the the Dungeons and Dragons vibes that that sh- uh, that that episode gave me, where they, yeah, you know, they totally. go to this, <laughs> this lost civilization and there's traps, and then yes. there's this glowing gem on a pedestal, and any person who's ever played D anD D would tell you, "Don't go grab the big glowing gem on the pedestal; it's going to set off a trap." And yeah, I'm like, I'm suspicious of glowing gems. <laughs> <laughs> Aang's metagaming. Yeah. Uh, but also, it's just like this, the interaction between, or whenever they, they you know, face off against the dragon, then they realize, oh, we got to do the dance. And then they, they do the fusion dance. And uh, it's just a really beautifully animated yeah. part of the show. It's important enough that that's where they, that's where they in universe have the music from the, uh, from the end credits. Oh yeah. Oh. Hmm. I also just like watching Aang and Zuko like now have to interact with each other um, <laughs> because it's Zuko is so just grumpy, grumpy him compared to like very positive Aang. I mm. think it's even more endearing. Yeah, curious, positive Aang. Yeah. But, I mean, part of the, the problem that, that Aang runs into during that episode is that he's, like, yeah, he's positive, he's upbeat, but he's also very cautious yeah. in a way that, that Zuko isn't, which mm-hmm. which is an interesting sort of uh, yin-yang between them. I mean, uh, because the, the show has done so much to kind of demonstrate their uh, the way that they mirror each other in, in, in distinctly opposite ways a lot of times, so... The, the yin-yang between them uh, just turns out to work very well. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Speaking of music, you brought up the music in that last one. Some of my favorite music, I have two, two pieces of music throughout the whole series, which are my favorite. One of them is that, this goes back to the first season, but it's the Sunki horn that um, Iroh plays. Mm. I think you first hear it in the blue spirit, but it's just like the low, solemn musical notes of the Sunki horn. You can find a YouTube compilation that's like two hours of repeat of it, and sometimes I put it on. Um, And then also the final music in that fight between Zula and like the last Agni Kai. It's just such beautiful music, and I listen to it when I swim, and it's awesome. That sounds nice. Yeah, it's really epic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, really appreciating the sound design in that fight yeah. of just how they could have gone, you know, just all out Michael Bay, tons of explosions and fire and stuff like that. And both of them screaming like Kamehameha's and stuff like that. But they don't like all the sound effects are very muted. And the music itself isn't super intense either. It kind of has like this ebb and flow sort of like like a pulse. It's It really just sort of drives the emotion behind yeah. it. With, the, with just the blue and orange lights, like, erupting some of my favorite. Yeah, yeah. I'm really happy that blue and orange were such a common theme in the show. I actually have two external hard drives that I used to back up stuff on, and I had to choose the colors, and I chose blue and orange. And that was, like, three years ago, before I even really ever thought I'd watch the show. So it's a good color combination. Yeah. I think I, think I want to I leave some of the uh, – a lot of the final – episodes uh the final conflict stuff i mean i guess we we did already talk a lot about the the zuko and azula and katara fight uh but yeah i want to leave a lot of the rest of the the final stuff for the second half of the episode after the uh, the fangamer news so in the meantime i do want to touch on a few 
uh, other little things about the the episode leading up, especially one of my favorite episodes of the entire series, I would say, is the Ember Island Players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very meta. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah, is. It's it's the last stop before the you know the final stretch of the final episodes, and as is lampshaded by Sokka, this is the kind of wacky time wasting nonsense I've been missing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How incredibly done. This the stylistic suck of this uh, of this performance is it's just like all the little details are so good. Uh-huh. <laughs> just a watching these these people like perform using like you know little streamers and things to represent the the bending and all that stuff. That's really fun. Uh, mm-hmm. But little things like the Katara characters unnecessary bustiness like the weird sexualization of this young character is kind of on the nose <laughs> for this show like just the build-up for everybody else's characters just kind of disappointing them and Toph every time is like nope that's accurate nope that's exactly the way it is kind of building up for <laughs> Toph to be super disappointed in her own uh, depiction but then she's just super into it. Like, yes, of yeah. course. This, this, I'm a big buff guy. That's awesome. I love it. <laughs> I think this this episode does a few things. And the first one is that it shows the writers and creators of the show can laugh at themselves. Mm-hmm. And they don't take... Uh, it is a serious show in a lot of ways, but they don't take themselves too seriously. I also think it, you know, addresses propaganda in a imperialist state mm-hmm. um, very well. Yeah, just the way that everybody is just really, like, the audience is cheering on the clearly evil bad guys. Yeah. Um, and then also to your point about, you know, Toph being super excited, I think it shows a really, just a really interesting comment on identity that I think we've seen throughout the show, but this most most plainly comes where like, this is how Toph sees herself and uh, is super into it. Whereas Aang really is offended by seeing himself in a feminine lens and mm-hmm. doesn't enjoy being feminized. Um, and so I think it just like says a lot about people's unique attitudes towards their own identity, whether that be gender identity, whether that be, everything that goes into identity. I just, mm-hmm. it just like clicked for me once you talked about how um, Aang feels kind of like demasculated in his like feminine portrayal. Uh-huh. Cause that connects to him trying to like put himself in a forceful way on Katara. Yeah. I also want to talk about that because that is such yeah. a good moment, a, such a good teaching moment of consent for young people where she's like, you're right. It is, it is forceful, but I think it's also a situation where like a lot of people would be like, well, I just, if I kiss her, I'll win her over. Right. Like she actually wants this about Katara where I think some creators might have made the choice of like, I was talking to a friend of mine and we were talking about this moment and he was like, yeah, you know, I could totally see myself pulling some of that stupid. And I think that in, in media, often it's portrayed like, Oh, well, if I, if I just kiss her, I'll get the girl, right? Like, that's where the magic happens. And I'm really appreciative of these creators for having Katara say, no, I just said I was confused and really reassert her boundaries because it does a lot of things. One, it shows young boys that that is not how you get the girl, right? It mm-hmm. also 
for any young girls watching who probably really admire Katara, it shows like, no, you do assert your boundaries. Even if you like this person, if you're confused, that is a really valid reason for not wanting to kiss them. So I was just like, especially as a children's show, I'm just continuously impressed by how they speak to children and the lessons that they are giving children in a really meaningful way. It's okay to be confused. It's okay to be confused. I guess uh, switching down gears a little bit. Um, I like the fact that uh, Aang was being played by a uh, by a female actor because, like, I remember. I'm sure it was also just you know a commentary on a lot of young boys in animated shows are voiced by female voice actors. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's also a direct reference to uh, to Peter Pan. Oh, didn't know that. Cool. Yeah, and I just remember like being blown away as a kid when I learned that Bart Simpson was voiced by a girl, like oh, a full-grown woman. It just because again, it just like me being young and impressionable, I just thought Bart was like the coolest. And the thought that like no, that voice is played by a completely different person than what is being portrayed in the show. It's just sort of like oh wow, that's really cool. So like I don't know, I thought that sort of representation. I thought it was just sort of like a tongue-in-cheek sort of reference to that with a uh, like voice acting and stuff like that. Also, I got to ask, did the Ember Island players come, did that episode air before or after the M. Night Shyamalan movie? Mm, that's a good question. I can't, is, is, this a, is this predicting the movie or is this a, also a, is this lampooning their own live action? Let's see. Story? It came out on July 18th, 2008. I think it's still before, but let's double check. Yeah. I, I think- feel like the movie was, came out after this show it completed, but I don't know. Yeah, I think so. I have never seen the movie, and I refuse. Yeah, I the last Airbender uh, by M. Night Shyamalan uh, came out in 2010. So, yeah, years later. Okay, gotcha. So it was a prediction then. Uh, <laughs> what, what specifically were they predicting? Because I again, haven't actually seen the the movie. Well, so me, I, me neither. Just I heard that it's not a very good adaptation, and they all leave the play going, that was a bad play. <laughs> Imagine a lot of people left the movie going, that was a bad movie. Yeah. Like I like M. Night Shyamalan. I like a lot of his early work, but yeah, like I, I heard his I heard that his um adaptation of it was left a lot to be desired. Yeah. I can't say too much on it because I have not seen it. Exactly. I, I don't wanna I don't wanna dig too deep in, into that for something that it sounds like yeah. none of us have seen. Exactly. And I might but suffice it. to say we've we've all kind of avoided seeing it for a lot of that same reason. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I might I might watch it now that I've seen the source material. Yeah. Now you can well, find you out know. exactly. I mean, I don't know how much of it is uh, other people like going into the last Airbender blind that walked away saying that's that was a bad movie, or if it's particularly people who watched the cartoon who then yeah. went to see the live action movie and walked out of it saying this it was incredibly disappointing because of how much the cartoon. Yeah, did. the book was better. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, the Amber Island players also lampshades the Katara X Zuko ship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, especially at this point in the show, you really see that, okay, actually, they do have chemistry, don't they? <laughs> and I think that was set up sort of from the beginning. Yeah, I feel like as much as they made fun of themselves, they were also kind of like jesting, like elbowing their fan base as well. Just being like, yeah, we we, we see you, we hear you, we know you're there, you know, that sort of thing. So, like, uh, I don't know, it's when he, like, has her necklace or something. This is, like, first season. Oh, yeah. And he, like, Mm -hmm. puts the necklace around her neck while she's, like, tied to a tree. And you're like, 
ooh, I'm uncomfortable oh this. But like you see where it's like a weird sexual attraction that really should not be at all. <laughs> and of course that's lampshaded again later uh, in, the, in the final episodes whenever they, they go to the bounty hunter because that, that was the same episode where the, the bounty hunter with the mole thingy tracked them down and oh yeah she's like oh I see you found your girlfriend mm-hmm. another like nice little nod and shows that they can sort of laugh at themselves is when Zuko's like did Jet just die? <laughs> and is like you know it was really unclear <laughs> yeah, I know yeah, and I think at one point Aang was like, all right, what I miss? And they're like, oh, I think Combustion Man just died or something. <laughs> yeah, again, unclear. <laughs> yeah. It's very good. <laughs> all right, I think this is a good point for us to take a, a quick break. Uh, let's do some fan gamer news real quick, and then we can come back and I think uh, delve a bit deeper into the into the final episodes. And uh, then I I, I kind of want to talk about some things going forward uh, into the future, or, or and also talk about things that we're gonna take away from having watched this uh, the show. So, uh, but first, fan gamer news. Let's do it. So we've got new merch in the Fangamer store. We often do, of course, but uh, we released a lot of stuff recently. One thing in particular I'd like to highlight is our new Banjo-Kazooie hoodie, as well as our Rareware hoodie, which, uh, if you're into the idea of that classic Rare logo on a Varsity hoodie, that's for you. Uh, we're also continuing our weekly live streams at twitch.tv slash Fangamer, where this week you can hang out with Jack as he makes 3D models and populates the world of VR chat. Uh, Jack, when will that be? That'll be Thursday at, I believe... One o'clock Pacific. So uh, 4 p.m. Eastern, or that's anywhere right. in between, apparently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's it for Fangamer News. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I do want to get back to uh, the discussion so we can finish it off on time. Yeah, we only got 20 minutes. Uh, uh, so, yeah, let's finish off this discussion and, yeah, see where it goes. Uh, quick question: What was the worst episode this season? Hmm, worst one, huh? Maybe the first. Oh wait, the the season or part two? I, maybe the I, I say the whole season, yeah. Because I would say oh, that generally speaking, the, the whole half. the whole uh, <laughs> season is definitely like like as you said before, Jack. How the quality just seems to just ramp up pretty directly. Okay, maybe the first worst episode was the first one of the season. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of Aang just being like no I'm going to go do really stupid proud things and then yeah, that's fair. and then being like oh wait I was dumb I'll just I'll, that's right we're, we've been a team this whole time I think we should still be a team and that's how it ends I'm going to say I'm going to say it's the episode where Aang infiltrates into a fire nation elementary school or like yeah. middle yeah. school because um, <laughs> I, I, I'll think I'll say that we can do without some of those we can do without some of the episode. It would be plot critical if we lost some of that episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. I, I kind of, uh, I would say for me, it's the Nightmares and Daydreams mm-hmm. episode. It's a cool episode. I think all of the episodes in this season are really good. But I also feel like this one did not have as many really fun. Like, I, I found that the, uh, the the headband episode where he goes to the school, I liked a lot of the moments in there. I would say more than the moments in Nightmares and Daydreams. But I think, like you said, neither of uh, n- neither of them I think are super important to 
what's going to happen next. And so you, I think you could remove either of those episodes from the season. And I do think that Nightmares, I think I would probably go with the... Those are two very fair picks. I would probably go with the headband over Nightmares and Daydreams for a couple reasons. One, because I think you need Nightmares and Daydreams in order to be like, oh, it is like a, a realization of what they're about to do um, and what Aang's about to do, which he thinks is to confront his destiny. And I don't think the headband has that, like... I think if you didn't have something in place of nightmares and daydreams, it'd just be like, and we're going along as normal, just doing our uh, saving the world thing without any real stakes. I, I would say that uh, to that point, and I don't disagree necessarily, but I would say that um, the headband episode also plays a very important role insofar as part of the problem that Aang is facing, especially there at the end, is the fact that the Fire Nation is... Uh, he never really bought into the idea of the Fire Nation being uh, largely comprised of good people who have bad leadership or anything like that. But in that one, we get to really see just how normal and uh, and fun the children of the nation are. And I think having that connection with them, especially early on in this season about the Fire Nation, was pretty critical. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I that's a, so you're kind of just talking about how like even within an imperial country, you have like moments of you know everyday life, and you can't really like blame the country as a whole. And humanization. Yeah. yeah, I think that's an important point. That's the United States. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's us. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, that that, that yeah. I mean, it's, it's important for us to know as as people who live in an imperialist nation to have, to hope that other people can also humanize us. But also, uh, it's also it's good for us to never just look at an entire group of people in any other nation and think, oh, okay, they're all obviously bad because that's not true. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a good point. So I think the conclusion is that the writers wrote a really tight script. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's talk about about this. I, I think because yeah, we really went over the uh, again the the Zuko Katara Azula fight uh, pretty well, um, and I, I guess we can talk about the efforts of Sokka and Toph and uh, and Suki to take down the airships uh, a bit. Yeah. And there's some really good moments there. Yeah. Uh, but I, I feel like I don't have a lot to say about that other than to say, yeah, that was good. I have something to say in terms of, like, how different would it have been if Sokka and Toph fell and died? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. That moment is just, like, oh, it's heart-wrenching. And obviously they could never have done this. And obviously, like, I don't wish death upon Toph and Sokka. But, like, if this was Game of Thrones or something to that caliber, like, that would have really, really affected me. Mm-hmm. And even then, like, e- even though they didn't get killed or captured in that moment, there were still some losses there, some emotional losses, even if it's not for other people. Like, Sokka lost two very dear things to him, his boomerang, which has been yeah. so core to his being for for a while, and his sword, which he forged in, in a very powerful growing moment for him. And so both of those losses are very much felt 
for me, especially as somebody who plays D and D and knows what it means to lose some important yeah. pieces of equipment. Goodbye, space <laughs> sword. Yeah. Also, there's a line where he's like, "I think this is the end." Like, mm-hmm. is crying, and like they really think they're about to die. Yeah, I think it's that that moment gets seen a lot. Yeah, of course, the fact that they went into it, no, like knowing that that was a possibility, like from the point, I would say, like as soon as they start going into, like heading towards this air force to take it out, they know it's them up against an army, three kids going up the fire, going up against the fire nation's entire. Yeah. Air Force, and they know how long shot that is to begin with. But you also hear Sokka's resignation that they might die whenever, like, he turns to the airship and sets it to go forward, and they're like, "Well, what's next? Well, we got to get to the top, you know. And if and if we make it that far, then we'll mm-hmm. see where we go from there." Yeah. yeah, and and we see as they're trying to go up there that yeah, if they were a moment later, they would not have made it that far. They would have just died. Yeah, it was very. Uh, a lot of skin of the teeth moments right there. Mm-hmm. Clutch ability checks. Yeah, that is a very D and D mentality of when you're in over your head and you're just sort of like, well, time for gambit after gambit after gambit, starting with that uh, birthday party ruse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was fun. Uh, Laura could recite the entire birthday party thing from memory. <laughs> Turned I, out, yeah. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> yeah no that was great uh, and it was much needed uh, moments of levity to kind of counter the fight between Aang and Ozai and uh, Katara and Zuko and Azula mm-hmm. I, I like I like the way that this show ends generally speaking there are some parts of it that I was not super into and it, a lot of it comes, comes down to the conflict between Ang and Ozai. Yeah, I really wanted him to kill him. <laughs> you have to shape your own destiny, but it is pretty Deus in Machina. Yeah. I, that I found really interesting was when Ang meditates to get into his previous avatar stage. Yeah, that's fun. Because I'll be honest, everything that like the wisdom that his avatar, his previous avatars, his previous versions were giving him. I mean, I, I followed through with that logic. It was like, okay, it almost seemed like it was like trying to justify the destruction of someone for the protection of like humanity yeah. of everybody else. I think it definitely was. And he was still not satisfied that. I will say that like a lot of them were that way, leaning towards that, you know, the idea, like Roku says, like, you can't, you have to be decisive. You can't be passive. Like I, if I had been decisive, I could have stopped this, right? By decisive, he means killing him. But then, and then obviously Kiyoshi is like, yeah, murder him. But then the Avatar Korik, the waterbender one, he says like, you have to actively shape your own destiny, which I think Aang does do. Like, that was the whole point. And we, that goes back to the fortune teller episode. I do like seeing the past avatars. Yeah, I really appreciate that sort of self-struggle because, I mean, I think uh, that sort of, like, peer pressure and knowing that feeling that you you know that what you have to do feels wrong and just, like, sort of holding out, knowing that, trying to find that balance of needing to do what's right while also staying true to yourself, like, not debasing yourself. Yeah. Even if it's important. Like, staying true to yourself, no, like, 
and like taking other people's opinions and you know knowledge and wisdom but also knowing that really you're the only person who knows what's right and wrong for you yeah it's a really powerful i think it does show the evolution of the avatar because he's not getting advice from just random people he's getting advice from his past selves all of which would have made a different choice than him but it Mm -hmm. showed like he chose to change the narrative so while it is sort of like oh convenient that he was able to do this right i still think it plays to ang is the one who had to like become corruptible Mm -hmm. or incorruptible and I think it's just also just a good lesson on life. Like it is very ace in the whole, just kind of very convenient solution for everything. But I think it's also important to remember that like life is never, despite how much uh, the show has of like yin and yang and like blue and orange and black and white, that there's also a lot of themes of like, there's always, you know, gray in between. And like, there's always, there's always a third option, you know, like there's always another way. Yeah. Don't yeah. accept the options being presented to you uh, every time. Sometimes mm-hmm. it is, there is more. And I, I got to say, I don't actually have a problem with the energy bending thing that, that Aang does. It does come a little bit out of left field, but not really because we've been seeing Aang trying to struggle for another way out for a while. And that is fine as far as I'm concerned. The weirder parts for me is first the weird way that he gets his, uh, his, Avatar state back. That's very Deus Ex Machina. There is, yeah, like oh, is is that all it was? You just if we just hit him the right way, it would have come back. That's okay. Yeah, I've done physical therapy. That that's real, man. <laughs> he just needed a really good chiropractor. Turns out, yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. That 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 seemed weird. Instead of it being like like him overcoming some sort of mental barrier or anything like that, he just got thrown up against a rock and that was good (laughs) but i I, i'm actually not too uh that i don't mind too much also because you know whenever it unleashes the avatar state the the avatar state is scary to me like it is not a pure positive like yeah he's (laughs) overpowering sozin but we also know that in in overpowering him in this way that is very not Aang, and usually whenever it comes out, it's because Aang is kind of losing himself. What if he wasn't fighting Sozin? Like, a lot of the show, people are just kind of throwing rocks around. You know, like, they'll throw a giant boulder, something that someone can easily dive out of the way, and it looks dramatic. Whereas mm-hmm. Aang in the Avatar State takes a boulder about the size of, like, you know, a watermelon, and he breaks it apart into thousands of pieces and basically turns into, a like, a minigun and just mm-hmm. sort of annihilates a mountain range. So... Yeah, it's 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 scary. <laughs> Uh, and, and not 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 for us specifically because it's not like we really identify with uh, with Ozai in that moment, but uh, just because we are afraid of Aang losing himself, and he manages to stop himself there in that last moment as he's about to pierce Ozai with all four elements at the same time, and so that that, that I feel is a really good moment. I would say that generally. I was not super into the battle. Otherwise, I felt like it went pretty long and got really Dragon Ball Z-ish for a while there. <laughs> yeah, it's not the it's not the star of the episode for me. Like I I think it's totally outshone by the Zuko Azula fight. I mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. I did want to talk about the Iroh and Zuko reunion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like Iroh has a lot of good quotes in general where I'm like in my in my hardest times I think what would Iroh say, you know? But one of them is like, 
where he's like, destiny is our friend. I know it. Every time I hear that, I'm like, yeah. Let's go. <laughs> Good stuff there. And like not being angry, just sad. That's also just another completely relatable thing in the show of like a child, like being worried that they disappointed their parents and that their parents will never be able to view them the same way or like never forgive them. They won't be able to go back to the way things were. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're going to be running out of time pretty soon here. So there's, there's just a couple of things I want to uh, make certain to touch upon before we close out. And I think one of the biggest ones is, so clearly we've all, we all enjoyed this series uh, to some degree or another. What are you going to be taking away from the series? What are the lessons that the show has taught you that uh, are going to impact you for going forward? I think something that this show does particularly well is show showcases teamwork and like how there is a lot of like individuality that you like hold um, for yourself. I don't know. I, I just liked how the show portrayed individual characters, but then also portrayed how they work together in like a team or like family unit, mostly because it's like you can't do anything alone at this point. Mm -hmm. So I think it did a really good job at showing teamwork in like fights, obviously, but then also like the whole journey of like working towards a common goal, but like together too. Yeah. That's a good one. I think for me, as somebody who, you know, I've I've had this show for such a long time and it's the show I watch when I'm sad. (laughs) So I think for me, it's, I'll go back to something like Iroh says in season two, where he's like, um, I think you're, I think you're wise to choose happiness. Mm. Um, And I think what I take from that is a lot of people, you know, think like if you want to try to change the world or if you want to have an impact on the world, what you really need, you don't need power or money or like these types of things. What you really do need is like happiness and empathy. And that's how you can really make a difference in people's lives. And even if you've messed up, like second chances exist and accountability. exists yeah, too. Yeah. Accountability exists as well, but that doesn't have to be directly tied to punishment. Like reparations can mm-hmm. happen and like the way Zuko gives reparations to them. Or there's, there's another, this is also from season two where I think Aang's going through like all that chakra stuff. And it's like, if you want to be a positive influence on the world, you do have to learn to forgive yourself. And so I think it's just, it's just a nice lesson of like, how can you be a positive influence on the world? Um, And it's by improving yourself first and finding humility in yourself. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, I'm having a hard time trying to think of one thing that I really feel like I learned from the show. I feel like maybe if I had watched it when it aired, this would have introduced me to like a lot of really nice, like sort of, uh, you know, quotes and themes and stuff like that and uh, life lessons. But I, uh, I feel like a lot of the stuff wasn't necessarily new. It's like I had already sort of uh, experienced this in a lot of other forms of media. I just think the show does a great job of just really bringing a lot of the best of other parts of media and bringing them all into sort of one nice tidy package. Hmm. Um, however, you did bring up the chakras and I got to say, like, I think the first time I heard the term chakra was probably from Naruto or something. And chakras have always had like this sort of just very right away kind of magic-y feeling to them. Whereas I feel like this show did a very, very beautiful job kind of explaining uh, or sort of like, 
creating this philosophy of chakras that I didn't otherwise have sort of a, uh, a vision of. But um, yeah, I think it's a I think it's just a great example of like character writing, uh, storytelling, foreshadowing, and like paying off, like like rewarding the payoff on things that Charlie's pointed out so many times. And like, yeah, I think it's just overall just a, a stellar example of storytelling. It is. Yeah, I think uh, whenever it fr- I first watched it, it I, I don't think I was ever much of a. I, I think I've always been kind of a pacifist in a lot of ways. But this show really helped to like cement and I guess validate that that pacifist mindset of trying to find solutions to problems that don't amount to violence whenever you can. Yeah. But also just from a as somebody who is uh, a storyteller and a lot of like that that's where I get a lot of my my creative output is as a storyteller and the way that this show like like you said Jack just really shows how how compelling and fulfilling having setups and payoffs like knowing how to use them uh and yeah. using them to to get people you know moving forward and really appreciating and making making it feel like everything that happens happens for a reason yeah you you, you feel like it is it's impactful whenever you see things build up and pay off uh, yeah, that's something that I feel a lot of, especially a lot of movies I see nowadays, they just don't seem to really understand that. Uh, they also don't really understand how to show uh, characterization, like how people change over time in a way that's believable. And it's it's great whenever I do see that in shows and movies. Uh, but by really analyzing this show, I think I have a sharper eye for when and how exactly other things don't work. Yeah, for sure. Anybody who wants to write really needs to watch Avatar. Because mm-hmm. I think everybody can recognize whenever a movie or a show or a story isn't working for those reasons because they just feel like, oh, that was that might have been really cool, but it's just, I don't know, something felt like it was missing or rushed or whatever. But by, by yeah. watching this and really analyzing it, you can really pinpoint why those feelings exist. Yeah. I was just thinking of things like maybe an example would be uh, for someone that when it doesn't work is like if you ever have a movie where you're just there's a part where it just kind of lulls and you're feeling like, you know, you're just really having a hard time focusing on it. And uh, afterwards, you kind of you don't even remember certain parts of the movie. And it's yeah. just because like a lot of it was just not relevant. It was just kind of getting it to the 90 minute mark sometimes. Whereas uh, this again, it's just like we were talking about, like, what's our least favorite episode? Like that's a really hard question because yeah, they like every episode does have its own like purpose for being there. It's part of the composition of the entire picture. Yeah. And uh, just to kind of leave off, of course, the show does leave us with uh, a few open questions. Like how does the world move on from here? Do these people uh, end up, you know, being happily ever after? Of course we see uh, Ang and Katara kiss there at the end. Which is, you know, okay, fine. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, like, and of course, where is Zuko's mom? Yeah. Have <laughs> read the comics, Charlie? Yes. And yeah. I've actually, I've actually uh, read the comic where they do actually go into it. Uh, so, you know, yeah. there, there's a lot more places for you to be able to follow up. Yeah. What I will, since, since we haven't, not everybody has read the comics, but um, what I will say about the comics is I think, as Avatar, Avatar's so good at doing this, but they do pose, openly pose the question of like, what do we do in a post-colonial world? 
I'm not going to say they give a totally adequate answer because I don't think anyone currently has an adequate Mm -hmm. answer. But I, I really appreciate that this is such a complicated question being posed to children. And it's such a necessary question because we got to figure that out. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, And of course there is the the question of the sequel series, uh, Avatar, uh, sorry, uh, The Legend of Korra, which we're not going to go into details about right now because uh, a lot of you probably haven't seen it. And I think it's a very interesting show. Uh, I do recommend that people do watch it. I think you'll enjoy it a lot more if you don't go into it expecting Avatar, the, yeah. the, the last airbender. Suffice to say, I think it uh, it explores a lot of really interesting uh, ideas. It has some really cool characters, and it's fun to catch up with the world decades after the end of this one, even though even if the, the, the story itself struggles at times. Unless anybody else has any thoughts, uh, I think that'll do it for our, our first EXP share. Cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks for letting me join. Yeah, yeah. I gotta say. Thanks for joining uh, us. Yeah, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed uh, talking about this with all of you. <laughs> yeah, me too. So, listeners, if you'd like to send us your own recommendations for future EXP shares, please email them to your friends at fangamer.com. You can recommend shows, games, movies, music, pretty much any experience that we might enjoy diving deeper into. We're also happy to answer any questions you might have on any subject, whether we are experts on the topic or not. I am an expert at learning from my mistakes. Uh, especially since last episode, I lost the audio for everything I contributed contributed to the conversation. So I had to just recreate as much of it as I could, and that was not fun. Uh, <laughs> uh, but don't worry, I, I definitely am recording it this time. Uh, what are you folks experts at? I'm an expert at picking out primo out-of-context scenes from Avatar. <laughs> mine, for this, mine for this second half of the season was when uh, Toph took the helm of the airship. Just put put that online, no context. Just a little girl kicks down a metal door, belly flops. Specifically shave and a haircut too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Kicks down a door, belly flops into the door, then becomes a a mech warrior that just starts kicking people's butts. I am an expert at procrastinating, but getting it done anyway, I say as my mind has turned back to my work document in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for a presentation I have tomorrow. So on that note, I'm going to bow out. And right. Thank you so ahead. much for joining us. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. I, I'm an expert at adapting. I think <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm just the right amount of like, okay, let's let's give space to grieve, but it's it's never. I'm not a person who's in denial of things. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, uh, I, thank- say, I got. I think you're all experts on Avatar. I've been. I'm really glad I was able to uh, watch this show and be able to talk to talk to all three of you about this. Yeah. <laughs> Same. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jack and Carolyn and Sarah, for joining me this week. Listeners, if you would like to support this podcast, please consider buying something from the Fan Gamer Store. Alternately, just share us with your friends, tweet about us, or even tweet at us. Thank you, Super Soul Brothers, for the music on this episode. And thank you, listener, for listening. We're your friends at Fangamer. Try to make someone smile today. And let's plan on hanging out again next week. Bye. Thanks for sharing. Bye.